You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of our RSAC 365 podcast series. We have a great podcast lined up for you today with our special guests, Rachel Toback and Camille Stewart, who will be talking about how social engineering meets risk mitigation. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask Camille and Rachel to take a moment to introduce themselves before we dive into today's topic. Camille, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Casey. Thanks for having me on today. My name is Camille Stewart. I am the head of security policy for Android and Google Play at Google. I'm also a cyber fellow at the Harvard Belfer Center and one of the co-founders of Share the Mic in Cyber. And I am Rachel Toback. I am the CEO of Social Proof Security, and I do a lot of human hacking. It's super fun. I get to work with Camille because I am the chair of the board for the nonprofit WISP, Women in Security and Privacy, and we work together with the Share the Mic in Cyber team. So I'm really excited to be here with both of you today. As am I, and I just want to right off the bat thank you both so much for making time to chat with us today. It's great to have you here. Rachel, I'd love it if you could talk our listeners through how you hack people based on their publicly available information and how they can avoid sharing the pieces of information that you use to hack them. Absolutely. So this is particularly relevant right now with the Facebook data leak that we're seeing in the news, because a lot of the pieces of information that I'm looking for when I'm trying to hack people are the things that are in that data leak. So there's two main routes that I take when I'm hacking humans. Either I hack them directly through something like a phishing email, a call, a text, social media DM, or I hack them through their service providers. So I don't contact them at all. I contact their service providers and do account takeover there. So if I'm hacking people directly, I'm trying to ask myself questions like, who could I pretend to be that you would believe? What's a credible pretext that I could build? And who do you trust to do your job or your life tasks? And if I could pretend to be one of those people, I can use what's called kind of a trust transference to get you and I to build rapport really quickly, and hopefully I can get you to do something like click a malicious link or give me sensitive data or I can steal your money or whatever. Or I can hack you through your service providers. So I need to understand what data do those service providers, like say uh, your company that you use for your gas or electric, what do they use to authenticate people? Is it a birthday, address? you know, last four digits of your social security number, what have you, I have to understand those things and then find those things so that I can hack you with that information. So there's two main ways, and uh, generally I look on social media. That's where I find the majority of the things I need. That sounds like an awful lot of homework. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. It's on a lot of homework on the offensive side, but it's also a lot of homework on the defensive side, which I'm sure Camille can speak to. I would love it if you could, Camille, just talk to people about, you know, how to mitigate this risk because clearly our information is out there, right? And it's publicly available, as Rachel mentioned. So how do we protect ourselves? And, you know, what are the trade-offs that we need to understand when we're making these decisions to share this information? 
how do we understand what are the risks involved in that? So I'd like people to get to a place where they are thinking about their digital security and their digital privacy similar to their physical security. You make a decision based on whether you know Taekwondo, whether or not to walk down that alley. I don't know Taekwondo, so I'm not going down that alley. Um, and I have just like calculated the risk evident in walking down the alley to decide whether or not my physical safety and security would be challenged in a way that I'm not ready to deal with. It is very similar online, but the mitigations are really easy. They're all the things we keep hearing about, right? Two-factor authentication, don't reuse passwords. Another good one that Rachel illustrated very well um, is stop sharing your security question answers on your social media, right? Your mother's maiden name, either you don't use it as your security question answer or you shouldn't put it out into the world, although it's probably already out in the world, so please don't use it. Um, but definitely use the tools that are provided to you, like multi-factor authentication. It is an easy way to mitigate some of that risk. Not reusing passwords is another easy one. If you want to use a password manager to help you manage all of those things, do a little research to help you find one that you know suits your needs and is secure and has had a good reputation. They're not foolproof. I mean, it's a lot of folks talk about that, how it's one point of failure, but it is a much better tool for everyday use than you trying to write passwords on a Post-it note. Um, be critical of the information you're putting out on social media. Not only do your friends and family see it, but particularly when you have open accounts, but even when you don't, other people are seeing the information you're putting out there, and you're leaving breadcrumbs that create a trail that smart folks like Rachel use to then build a profile on you and be able to gain access to your account. So with just a little bit of intentionality, you can limit the amount of information that's out there. Also be intentional about what information you use to protect yourself on the back end. So whether you create some persona that you've never told anyone about and have a fake mother's maiden name and a fake this and a fake that that you use to authenticate your account, or um, make sure that you're not choosing questions with information that's out in the world and then you don't share it out in the world, being intentional about what information you're putting out is going to be key. I love that, Camille. I really like how you mentioned that alley example. That's not something that I've heard people talk about before, but it makes so much sense to people because everyone has had that moment where they think, hmm, not sure if this is a route that I want to take. Maybe I'm going to stay maybe on a more well-lit path. But many people think that it's much more challenging to think through their security. It feels more maybe opaque to them or more confusing. But you're right, just making those decisions based on what's available to you, the resources that you have, skills and tools that you have available to you, is a really easy way to think through your threat profile and, and do your threat modeling. Um, the phrase that I use to describe this is being politely paranoid. So there are certain things that you can do and certain things that maybe you don't want to do. You know, if your threat model is such that you are a senator uh, and you're in the news all the time, then your threat profile is higher and you're probably going to make different decisions based on that information uh, available to you. And so you might want to move towards maybe a hardware MFA rather than SMS to FA, for instance. Uh, because of your threat mm -hmm. profile, same as you might make decisions about where you go or don't go without a handler. Yeah, these choices boil down to convenience versus security or convenience versus privacy. And to give up just a little bit of your convenience to gain a little bit more security or a little bit more privacy is something that I want people to be open to and be more aware of so that they can make those choices. 
that extra step to have the hardware key rather than the SMS is not that much of a loss of your convenience. Um, but it reaps so much benefit from a security perspective. So I completely agree with you. Love that. What I think is interesting, too, just listening to both of you, Camille, you know, you talked about you know, a fake mother's maiden name or, you know, fake this or fake that to answer those security questions. But then, you know, as I was listening, I recalled Rachel's statement that the defensive is a lot of homework, too, right? And so, and I have tried these tactics myself, and I try and, you know, make up lies to answer my security questions. And then I'm all kinds of confused and I can't keep track of my own lies. We're not supposed to write anything down. So it does become really complicated for people. And how do you navigate that in a way that is efficient? Yeah. I mean, I think that the multi-factor authentication piece is key because then if you forget that persona that you've created, you're more likely to be able to recover your account in another way using that security key or your phone through SMS or something like that. But you're right. It is cumbersome to remember a whole different persona, especially if you decide you're going to have like seven personas, which I do not recommend. (laughs) Uh, Have one persona and don't share it with anyone. And the moment that you do, it's a wash, right? But, um, I mean, it's an investment worth making. Just like we invest in, back to the physical security um, example, we invest in things that help us stay physically safe, whether that is locks on our doors or shoes that help you run fast because you're afraid to, you got to go down the alley and you're going to just do it quickly. Those investments help you mitigate and balance the risk that you're, you're taking on. And so you might have to do a little homework, but it is well worth the investment. I agree completely. And thinking about the personas and the way that we can keep track of all of these things that we've created about ourselves, these lies that we use for our own security, I found that I just keep track of those things in my password manager. And it helps me so much. You know, I'll say like, you know, this one asked what my favorite band was. And of course, it's not going to be the real answer because that's public information. I talk about the concerts I go to, right? Um, so instead, I've created this you know, fake answer to these security questions because until companies get to a point where they're able to protect our security in a better way without these sort of knowledge-based authentication questions, which I do recommend they do, we will have to do a little bit more homework and keep track of things better in things like an encrypted password manager. So shifting gears a little bit, I was hoping that you could both talk about mobile security and the data that users are sharing with developers. Um, Specifically, I'd love for you to talk about the concerns and the risks and the insights that hackers can leverage from this shared data. Camille, why don't we start with you? This is a bit of a soapbox for me. (laughs) Um, You know, your mobile device is the gateway to so much information about you. You carry it with you everywhere. So physically it's tracking a lot of your location information and places you go, people you interact with. Your contact information has everyone you know. And if you're like many people, you've had the same phone since, you know, high school and or the same phone number and likely the same contact information. So that's like a map of the history of the people that you've met and encountered. Um, It's got your access to bank accounts. You might save your passwords in there in some way. It might even be much of a diary to you. And so it is a rich source of behavioral and knowledge information about you. 
And I want people to be, back to that earlier statement, more intentional about the choices they make. So people feel like when they download a new application and they have all of those um, pop-ups that ask them whether or not they want to allow the app to get a certain permission, and a permission is gaining access to things like your location or your contacts, et cetera, that they have to do it for the app to function as they want it to. And that's actually not true. Most of the time, the app will function just fine without gaining access to your contact information. It will operate just fine with either limited access to your location or periodic access to your location. Feel more in control of the questions that the application is asking you at download. Also, both um, Android devices and Apple devices have gone through a lot of work to provide places for you to see what things your applications are accessing. And so limit that information as much as possible. If you're not using an app, it shouldn't be on your phone. If it's not using um, location to provide you the services that you need, turn that off. Your device is really so rich with data that you should be guarding it with everything you've got. So make sure your phone has a password on it because there are some physical security concerns. Don't let people look over your shoulder while you're logging into your bank account. Don't use apps with secure information on public Wi-Fi. You probably shouldn't even go on public Wi-Fi unless you have a VPN on your phone. So a lot of those things that you're doing on your computer or should be doing on your computer, those cyber hygiene tactics are really important on your phone because it is so rich with sensitive information. I'm so glad we have you on the good side, Camille, helping us to make sure that all of these things are secure. Uh, I, I just am, It makes me sleep better at night knowing that you're making sure that my information is doing the very best things that it can be doing on my phone, and I appreciate that. I also think about how there's some different types of apps that are out there that don't have that kind of support that people talk about in the news all the time. Like the one that comes to mind for me is Clubhouse, uh, where we might not independently leak our data to Clubhouse or share that information back and forth with others, but Clubhouse has this thing that pops up that says, hey, do you want to share your contacts with Clubhouse to potentially send them an invite? Those are the types of things that I really want to see companies get to a point where they say, listen, first of all, we don't even want to receive this information because if we have a breach, we're going to just have more people and their private information than we want. And second of all, um, we don't need that information. It's not relevant. You can share it the way that you want to. So my dream is we have more people like Camille in every company who talk sense and say, listen, that is not necessary. Please do not compromise people and their privacy just for some feature. That's really just not a necessary feature. Okay. So we have an idea of what hackers can do, and we have an understanding of what trade-offs are being made when they decide to share information. But how do we catch a human hacker in the act? Well, to catch a human hacker in the act, you have to use what I call polite paranoia, which means using two methods of communication to confirm that people are who they say they are. So, you know, often I will pretend to be another person when I contact someone, either over email, over the phone, SMS, and a social media DM. And what if instead, let's say we get an invoice from renovations unlimited LLC, right? And we're doing this type of thing, but we have blog posts that are public about our work with that vendor. And let's say I get an, in, an invoice from them. What if I reach out to them and say, hey, quick question about that invoice you sent me using a different method of communication. If I can do that, it's going to be much more likely that I won't send $100,000 to somebody who is actually an attacker who just found that information via OSINT 
open source intelligence. So using two methods of communication is one of the very best things that you can do. We've seen a lot during the pandemic, too, where, you know, there's a lot of financial strife going on right now. And so people are pretending to be a distant cousin of yours and reaching out over Venmo or reaching out um, over DM on a social media platform and saying, hey, I'm stuck in this you know, city. I don't have money. It's really stressful with COVID. Can you please help me? Those are the types of situations where we just want to call up that cousin and say, hey, are you okay? What's going on? And of course, they're likely going to say, you're getting scammed. That's not real. So if you can use two methods of communication, you're going to catch me nine times out of 10. Uh, those are the types of things that really shut me down when I'm attacking. Of course, when I attack, I'm just hired to do so. I don't just do this randomly to people. I always have a contract with them. But uh, that works the same way for criminals as well. And then there's a lot of technical tools I'm sure we'll get to as we talk today. So, Camille, I thought of you this morning. I'm taking a uh, an intro to cybersecurity class through edX, and um, they repeatedly said that humans are the weakest link in cybersecurity. <laughs> and I know that for you, you kind of have to bite your tongue when you hear that expression. But I would love it if you could talk about why that security position is flawed and how can security professionals meet people where they are in order to be more effective? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So everything we've talked about today, um, Rachel's clear articulation of the tactics she uses and the tactics that malicious actors are using, us talking about you as a user making choices about how you interact with technology and what data you provide access to and how you let it show up in your life means that people are at the center of security. Um, and if we forget that, then we're not building security tools and best practices that actually can maneuver through people's lives. And so as practitioners, it is our job to think about how technology shows up in the lives of the user and not to blame them for being the weakest link in security. We know that people are not going to use every best practice. So how do we build tools that anticipate that? How do we build tools that are user-friendly? How do we build tools that show up in their lives in the ways that they needed to in a secure and privacy-preserving manner? So, yes, that tends to bother me because that is a nod to this old-school authoritarian model of thinking where you delegated some technology to some people at work and they needed to do exactly what you told them to do with that technology. But whether this is in a work context or as a consumer, technology has to integrate with the lives that we lead. And, and the lines between work and home have blended so much, particularly in this COVID environment, but in general, such that that way of thinking can no longer yield positive results. Um, and so if we're thinking about how technology is showing up in the lives of our users, our security tools will be more effective, we'll better understand the opportunities for vulnerabilities to exist or how attackers can leverage whether it's data or the use and implementation of technology to reach out to consumers and manipulate them, whether it's to get behavioral information or to inevitably hack or attack them. Um, so, yes, that expression, that way of thinking and security needs to retire because if we keep people at the center, we'll be able to better anticipate the movements of both the malicious actors and our users. Camille, we are on the exact same page. It's seriously amazing. So I also love the way that you said we need to retire that users are the weakest link in security. We need to make sure that people are actually the first line of defense. And I love having these conversations with people when they say, 
oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a practitioner. I'm working with people. My users keep clicking on phishing emails. They keep clicking on links. Oh, it's so annoying. They're the weakest link. And really reframing that for our audience and our practitioners in our world and saying, what if we can work with tools that stop that email from even hitting your user's inbox so that it's not their fault if it comes through, right? Because we can do that. There are certain things we can do. We can upgrade our spam filtering. We can use email block lists for known attackers. We can use certain tools that look at the language and think, hmm, this this looks like a phishing attack. Yes. And then we take it away from the people who are not practitioners and put it on us. It's our responsibility to keep people safe as practitioners. And how can we better do that? How can we better leverage technology to make sure that we can keep people safe so that they can be our first line of defense if something does get through because they're trained and they understand what to do, but they don't have more threats that are coming to them than necessary. And I love that you said that, Rachel, because as Camille was saying, you know, we need to think about tools in a way that, you know, they are integrated with our lives and, you know, with humans at the center of security. And my immediate thought was like, yeah, but what about the people like Rachel who are then going to look for ways to compromise those tools and hack people? So I love that you bring that perspective of those tools really stopping before they even get to the humans. And that's really a great direction to move forward. I would love, Rachel, if you could talk about some best practices advice Uh, that you have for those who are wondering how to protect themselves from social engineering? Oh, absolutely. So the first thing I would say, the kind of the lowest hanging fruit is that 52% of people we know admit to reusing their passwords. We know this from the Google Online Security Survey in 2019, and those are just the people who admit (laughs) to reusing their passwords. It's probably much more than 52% of people. So if you could take time this upcoming weekend, whenever that may be, and go through your passwords, you know, your hundreds, I'm sure you have at this point of different websites, and start getting set up with a password manager. Stop reusing your passwords, have really long passwords, make it really hard for me to crack, and then start setting up things like multi-factor authentication if you don't have those on your account. Because if I'm able to siphon out your credentials, but you have multi-factor authentication, it's going to be really hard for me to get into your account. It's really setting it up for me to fail. And also, a password manager can tell you, listen, this looks like a legitimate website, but it's not. It looks like, say, AmericanAirlines.com, but it's off by a letter. So these are attackers trying to siphon out your creds, hoping that you use them in multiple accounts, maybe your bank, and siphoning out your money. Then the other thing you're going to hear all the time is just keeping your software up to date. You know, things like keeping your browser up to date, your operating system, your apps another piece of low-hanging fruit. And then the one that, of course, takes more time, but it's really effective against human hacking, is being politely paranoid, using two methods of communication to confirm that people are who they say they are. If you can do that, it's going to stop me nine times out of ten, like I said. Yeah, I, first of all, I just love the phrase politely paranoid. I think it perfectly <laughs> encapsulates the mentality that a user should have as they're navigating technology. I mean, I think another one, too, is go to the source. If you get an email, a phishing email in particular, um, asking you to verify something or telling you there's been some kind of security issue, go to that account and start there. Don't start from the email. I mean, it's another way of thinking about that two methods of communication that Rachel talked about. Also, consider creating that persona, but make sure if you do create that persona that you keep it to yourself. No one should know your fake mother's maiden name. 
um, no one should know, you know, you're fake banned. But if you use that to help augment some of the other security tools Rachel mentioned, you'll be well on your way. You've both offered some great advice, and I feel selfish even asking, but uh, before we wrap up, I would love it if each of you could share some parting words of wisdom for our listeners. Camille, let's start with you. Sure. I'll reiterate. Um, take control of your mobile device. Take control of the permissions. Deny things that no longer need access to different permissions. Don't say yes at setup. If it's a functionality you don't need or you don't want them to gain access to something, you have a lot of control in that. And if the app doesn't allow you to have the same user experience without access to that information, really consider whether or not that's an app you need to be using. Um, and then also remember that people are at the center of this. If you're a practitioner working in this space, really thinking about how technology enables people to live their lives, to do their jobs, um, and how security can augment that by protecting the user and equipping them to take control over their digital privacy and security. As practitioners, we should be thinking about how we make a broader cultural shift so that people understand security and then they are bought into the risk mitigation that we've been talking about today. That's great. Um, I would say very similar things. Uh, first, starting with practitioners. You know, the onus is on you to protect your users' data. And taking that responsibility is one of the first things that we can do, not blaming users, moving away from that, as Camille said, retiring that weakest link trope. That's one of the first things that we can do. Start thinking about upgrading your tools and your protocols and processes to make it way harder for me to be able to get in. It is possible. I have seen it done before. You know, for instance, with your call centers, talk through how you can update the protocols to move away from knowledge-based authentication questions and move towards technology. That's a really easy low-hanging fruit that you as a practitioner could do. And then for folks who are users out in the world, you know, you're not a security practitioner, taking those quick steps to protect yourself, like starting things like turning on multi-factor authentication, real great low-hanging fruit stopping the reuse of passwords. That's a longer task. It's going to be more uh, advanced as you go because you're just going to get more and more organizations and websites that you leverage with passwords. But hopefully we'll move away from all of that one day in the future with more technology. But you can stay safe out there. You are not the weakest link, and we are working hard to protect you, and you can protect yourself with those steps. That's all great advice. Thank you so much. Rachel, Camille, it has been a pleasure having you here with us today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC, and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. Also, subscribe to the RSAC podcast on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app, and stay tuned for our next podcast. Interested in being a guest on our podcast? Visit rsaconference.com to learn how to become a contributor.